Nativia, www.netivyah.org. Is it possible to restore the New Testament church? A three-part series recorded February 1994 at North Atlanta Church of Christ. Part 3 of 3. This has been the longest time I've been in any place in America, in one place, in 20 years. I have never been three Sundays in a row in the same place since my wife Marsha and I have gone to Israel in 1969. And this is the, the, the longest I've ever been and the longest I've ever, they've ever kept me in one place. <laughs> a very famous rabbi, his name is Malbim, Romanian. He was born, raised, and died in Romania. And, and one of his famous statements is, if you want to see the world, speak the truth. They won't keep you for long in any one place. <laughs> yeah, but this is, this is a real privilege and, and wonderful to be here with you and with such audience that hadn't brought egg, rotten eggs or tomatoes or anything to throw at me. And I appreciate that very much. I hope you keep it up that way, peacefully, through next week. Uh, today was a day dedicated by request to talk about the restoration and the restoration movement. And this morning I said a mouthful. Tonight I want to kind of sharpen what I said this morning and focus it a little bit in a different direction. Because what is easier, to restore the unity of Christ's body after 2,000 years of, of division and wars? Or is it re easier to restore the truth? What do you think, folks? What is easier to restore, the unity of Christ's body or the truth? The truth is easier to restore. Because we have it here in a book. And, and the book can be studied, examined, dissected, within the context and the language and the history and the the world in which it was created, and we can come pretty close to the knowledge of the truth. In fact, you could read Catholic scholars that write about the early church. They know the truth. They write good things about the New Testament as long as they're exegeting the text. Yeah? You can read even Jewish scholars about the New Testament. There is wonderful Jewish scholars that study the New Testament and write about the New Testament. I could tell you half a dozen right off the top of my head. Yeah? And they, they discover the truth. They read the text. They know the circumstance and they discover the truth about the life of the early church and what people said about Jesus and all these things. In fact, those of, how many of you have ever been on a tour to Israel? Raise your hands. Did you have a Jewish a believer as a guide or a non-believer as a guide? Non-believer, right? Did he know the New Testament? Yeah. Some of them can quote whole sections of the New Testament. They don't believe it. Yeah. But they know what's written there. And many Christians are surprised. They say, how could they know so much of the Word of God and not believe it? It's because... Knowledge does not guarantee belief. Because belief 
it, the end result is a matter of the will. Yeah? One of the great Jewish rabbis that lived in the 11th century started a very famous book with the statement, to believe is the greatest commandment of all. And to believe is an act of the will. Yeah? We have bought some, somehow into an idea that if somebody knows something, he automatically believes it. It's not necessarily so. Yeah? To believe is an act of the will, and we have to will to believe. There are people who, who you could show them book, chapter, and verse, verse what is written in the Bible, and they'll say, yes, it is so. But so what? You know, I witnessed to a lot of people in Israel that see it written and say, yes, it was like that. Do you believe Jesus was crucified? Yes. I, do you believe he raised from the dead? Yes, I believe. But believe for them is like for most of the world today. It means consent. Yes, it's a true fact. But it doesn't filter down into their toenails and fingernails, into their actions and into their commitments in life. That's why I believe that it is harder to restore the unity because it has to do not with consent, with the agreement of facts. Everybody agrees that Christ made one body. That the church was one. Everybody agrees that the church has one head. Even those that pray to their father, Pope John II, John Paul II in Rome, and call him father, even they agree that the ultimate head of the church is Jesus Christ. Everybody agrees with the facts of the Bible if they know the Bible, but it doesn't filter down into the, their commitments and into their will and into their practical life as Christians. That's why unity is harder to achieve. Another thing that makes unity harder to achieve is the fact that we don't have a broad enough perspective. We want everybody to be like us. And we are surprised. Americans from the south are surprised that they come to a hotel in Jerusalem and they want to eat how many grits and there isn't any. Yeah. They're surprised. How come you don't have how many grits? Yeah. And when they get a falafel, they think that it's a hush puppy. You know? Oh, so we didn't know the Jewish people ate hash puppies until they take a bite out of it and they see that it looks like a hash puppy, but it's not a hash puppy, it's a falafel. Yeah? And, and, and the, every, we, we can only see, you know, unity when we will have a broad enough perspective to see that God is the creator of the whole world. And that he made all mankind. And that he gave the same, more or less, amount of brains to all mankind. And that other people have eyes in their heads. And they can see as well as we can. And that they're not inferior if they wear a loincloth and not a hard Schaffner Mark suit. Because that's their culture. You try to live in their country wearing a suit. 
see what happens to you. Yeah, you'll melt. Yeah. And this, these, these aspects are very, very hard to communicate. I want to share with you one chapter from the book of Romans that will serve as the groundwork to discuss the unity of Christ's body and how we can work toward its restoration. Chapter 14 of the book of Romans. Uh, somebody with a microphone, stand up and read for us the whole chapter. It's not very long, only 23 verses. Who has the microphone? Accept him whose faith is weak without passing judgment on disputable matters. One man's faith allows him to eat everything, but another man whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. The man who eats everything must not look down on him who does not. And the man who does not eat everything must not condemn the man who, who does, for God has accepted him. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To his own master he stands or falls, and he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One man considers one day more sacred than another. Another man considers every day alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. He who regards one day as special does so to the Lord. And he who eats meat eats to the Lord, for he gives thanks to God. And he who abstains does so to the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself alone, and none of us dies to himself alone. If we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. For this very reason, Christ died and returned to life, so that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. You then, why do you judge your brother? Or why do you look down on your brother? For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. It is written, As surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me, every tongue will confess to God. So then each of us will give an account to, of, of himself to God. Therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in your brother's way. As one who is in the Lord Jesus, I am fully convinced that no food is unclean in itself. But if anyone regards something as unclean, then for him it is unclean. If your brother is distressed because of what you eat, you are no longer acting in love. Do not by your eating destroy your brother for whom Christ died. Do not allow what you consider good to be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of, of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit, because anyone who serves Christ in this way is pleasing to God and approved by men. Let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All food is clean, but it is wrong for a man to eat anything that causes someone else to stumble. It is better not to eat meat or drink wine or to do anything else that will cause your brother to fall. So whatever you believe about these things, keep them between yourself and God. Blessed is the man who does not condemn himself by what he approves. But the man who has doubts is, is condemned if he eats, because his eating is not from faith, and everything that does not come from faith is sin. Now, to me, the background of this chapter indicates that there were problems in the church in Rome 
similar to the problems that we face today, except we don't today don't argue in, in the, in, among the, the Western church so much about food and, and drink and holidays, but we argue about other things. And it's important for us to understand a little bit of the background of this chapter. In the church in Rome, there were Jews and there were Gentiles in one body. And they worshipped together as one body. Now, the Jewish people kept the Jewish customs. They did not assimilate and they kept biblical kosher and they kept the biblical holidays and they lived a Jewish lifestyle. And the Gentiles that were in the church did not keep these holidays and they did not eat kosher and they ate pork and meat offered to idols and other things that the Jewish people in good conscience couldn't do because for them it would have been disobedient to the law of Moses. That was the circumstance that, that was found not only in the church in Rome, but all over. And that historical condition caused friction inside the church. Now he's not writing here to non-Christians. This chapter is written to brothers. And that's how he appeals to the people that are brothers. He's not writing to water down and to accept anybody who believes in Buddha or in Muhammad or in somebody else. He's talking to people who have already accepted Jesus as Lord. Yeah, who have already died with him and risen with him into a new life in baptism. He is talking about people who accept the authority of the Holy Spirit and the Word of God. He is talking to people who have made a commitment yeah, to Jesus Christ. And he reflects that commitment in this chapter. In a number of the verses, if you look carefully, he mentions that commitment. And he talks about people who are sincere and that do whatever they are doing for the glory of God. If they eat, they eat to the glory of God. If they don't eat, they don't eat to the glory of God. If they bless the food, they bless it to God. If they bless the day, they bless it to God. Everything they do is to the glory of God. So he is talking to the church. Yeah? Not to those who are not are outside of the church. And by the church, he didn't mean the Campbellite movement. He meant everybody who gave his life to Jesus Christ. And at that time, there was only one church. There was no Protestants, Pentecostals, Presbyterians, Baptists, Churches of Christ, Churches of God. Everybody was in one body and everybody was being persecuted. Yeah? In the church. The Jews and the Gentiles. And then within the church, within the body of those who comprised the born-again children of God, there was friction based on what they eat and what they drink and which holidays they keep and what their culture is. Okay? That's the historical circumstance in which this chapter is written. If I would translate this historical circumstance to today, which would not be easy to do, I would say that he was talking to a bunch of people that were worshipping together in one city, but one could have been 
from the Christian church, another one from the uh, Plymouth Brethren, another one from certain charismatic groups, all of them, yeah, together, in the same circumstance, in the same place, worshipping together, and arguing about things like instrumental music, or whether they should break bread every week, or once a month, or once a quarter, or once a year, or whether they should have a pulpit or not, or whether they should have a baptistry in the building or not. They were arguing and discussing things that are non-essential, which he states in this chapter and says, for the kingdom of God is neither food nor drink. Yeah? But every Jew that knew the law could go to the word of God and say, what are you saying the kingdom of God is neither food nor drink? Isn't it written in Leviticus chapter 11 that we should not do this and not eat that and not eat pork and not eat camel and not eat rats? Yeah? It's written that we shouldn't eat these things. And isn't this a revelation from God? And they would say, yes, it is a revelation from God, but it was given to the Jews and not to the Gentiles, and therefore don't pressure the Gentiles on things that they did not receive. Yeah? Or on the holidays, you know. Aren't the Gentiles redeemed together with us through the blood of Jesus Christ? Isn't Christ called our Passover? So how come the Gentiles don't have to keep the Passover? Yeah? They had good arguments. I'm trying to reconstruct the, the, the circumstance under which this chapter would have been written. They would have had good arguments and they could have thumped their Bibles. Each side could have thumped their Bible and stated this is what the others have to do. Are there any questions till now? It's important to understand this circumstance. And here is the solution that Paul offered. We, and why is this important? Because if we ever achieve unity, it's not going to ever be unanimity. There is a difference between unity and unanimity. Yeah? I am married to my wife 25 years, and we have a wonderful marriage and a wonderful home life. Praise God and thank Him. It's by His grace. Yeah? And we are one flesh and we are united. But we have different opinions on a lot of things. Yeah? And we discuss these things. Yeah? And each one holds his own and doesn't budge. And we are still united because we have a commitment that is above us and greater than both of us. That's what unites us. Now, the Apostle Paul... Yes, sir. All right. All right. I will come now. The, the question was, what is the criteria from determining essential from non-essential. Here is the criteria. Anything that is clear in the scripture, that you have a clear statement that is stated black on white in the scripture, and it is unite, unanimous in all the Bible, 
in all the New Testament, we should say, yeah, is essential. But anything that you have to jump from one verse to the other, to the third, to the fourth, to prove, yeah, it's like taking a, a map and applying a, a, a thin film over it to show you the road, yeah, then that is already a question of deductions. Anything that you have to do, mental acrobatics, to deduce, you can hold it. It's kosher, it's good. Yeah? But, I believe it's non-essential. God gave us a word that is for all mankind. It's not only for professors or theologians. Yeah? And he expects every Christian to take responsibility for his life. So he gave us the essentials, black on white. The rest of the things, in my opinion, he left for people to deduce and to add and to subtract and to figure out. And it's okay to figure out. I'm not against figuring out. For me, non-instrumental music is very important as a Jew. Yeah? The synagogues don't have instrumental music. I don't want it. Yeah? It's not a Jewish thing to do in the 20th century. It may have been a Jewish thing to do in the time of, uh, of the first temple. Yeah? And King David sure rejoiced and played the harp and, and pleased God with his playing. But, as a 20th century Jew that has to live in a Jewish community, I don't want it. Yeah? It doesn't do anything for me. It's a hindrance to the preaching of the gospel, in my opinion, in a Jewish context. Yeah? At least in the land of Israel. And I have good reasons that I have learned, yeah, from the churches of Christ in America and others that I, have, I can deduce that the church ought not to worship with an instrument. Yeah? I can deduce it. And I can prove it to you with my own logic that this is so. But is my logic equal to the will of God? Is my ability to reason out a text that is not clearly written law? I'm not the one who sets the law for the church. And I'm not the one who sets the standard. Today I can show you from the scripture one thing. And tomorrow I can add another thing. The next time I'll come and say... The color red is immodest, and, the, and it's, it, it, it indicates that, that whoever wears red is really a communist. Yeah? Because red is a color that is known in the 20th century as the flag of the communist countries. And therefore, I think that it would be improper for a Christian to wear a red shirt. Yeah? And, and I could find you another reason. I can bring you reasons from the Old Testament and from the New Testament that red is not a good color for Christians to wear. That it doesn't bring honor to God. Yeah? And, and I'll tell you, you don't have any place in the Bible that says you should wear a red shirt. Yeah? So how come you're wearing a red shirt? You know? That's our reasoning. Our reasoning, if something is not forbidden, yeah? In the, we say if something is not mentioned in the Bible, it is forbidden. That's our statement. It's our preference. Right? And we have a right to have a preference. And you have a right to wear a red shirt. So does he. Yeah? There's nothing wrong with it. 
But it is our deduction, our, that's the way we like it. And we have a right to like some things. But we don't have a right to impose our liking on others. Now if somebody says Jesus Christ is not the Messiah, He's not the Son of God, He's not divine, I wouldn't agree with him. Why? Because the text says that he is the Messiah. Inspired men wrote what they witnessed and said, Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of the living God. Peter confessed it. Yeah? It is demanded for salvation. There is no other name by which man, which God has given by which man may be saved other than the name of Jesus Christ. He himself said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father. Yeah? So that's essential. Anybody who doesn't accept Jesus Christ, you know, can't be his disciple. And can't be saved. And hasn't called upon the name of the Lord. Baptism. Yeah? Is essential. Why? It says, he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. Yeah? Repent and be baptized. I could quote you all the standard C of C passages from the New Testament. I learned them by heart. These are essentials. Now, things that we have to do, mental acrobatics, we have a right to hold by them. And as a church, the elders of the church and the leaders of the church have a right to decide them for the church. But they have no right to condemn the rest of the world. Yeah? For things that are deduced by us. Yeah? Some people like to eat fish, others don't. Yeah? You can't impose your likes and dislikes on the whole world. Yeah? That's my opinion. Yes, you had another question. How does it impact our relationship with people that differ on things that we consider essential. This is how it impacts. We are bound by the word of God to be the disciples of Jesus Christ. If somebody denies that which we consider essential, that means that we have a clear statement, a clear teaching in the word of God, yes, then we must not have religious fellowship with these people. That's clear. I cannot, like the Archbishop of Canterbury, sit with the chief rabbi of, of, of England and with, the, with the, 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 the priest of the Muslims, the mullah of, of, of England, and they agreed not to evangelize from, uh, Christian, Christian. Christians won't evangelize the Muslims, and they won't evangelize the Jews, and they all agreed that this is, this is right. But the, the Muslim never agreed that he's not going to evangelize the Christians. Yeah? And proselyte among the Christians. They're continuing to do so. I could never, yeah, agree against the word of God to live. Now I will be kind. I will be loving. I will try to teach in humility. Anybody, be it a high priest or a rabbi, I'm not going to be ugly to them because they disagree with what I consider essential in the Word of God. Most of the world doesn't accept this book as the Word of God. I will still try to teach them. Yeah? But I will not have spiritual fellowship with them and approve their position. 
which would be a heresy. I'll act human and nice and loving and kind toward them, but I will not consent to take a position that is anti-biblical. Yeah? But that's a very big cry, a big difference between that and what we've, ha- what we've done. We don't have, we have not discussed the essentials of the New Testament in the churches of Christ for many, many years. Yeah? We have not discussed the nature of God, who Jesus Christ is. Yeah? How much God is He, how much man is He? These are things that we never discuss. Yeah? When is the last sermon you've heard about the, the, the nature of Jesus Christ? Yeah? His equality to God, His hierarchy with God, the Trinity. Yeah? The, when we discussed the oneness of God, the essential things that we all must agree on are neglected because we have concentrated on all kinds of peripheral things. And we have made dividing lines of whether Jesus is going to come in a Cadillac or on a jackass. Yeah? That's, that, that's about as, it, it, this is about as important of where it's pre-tribulation, post-rapture, a post-rapture, and, uh, you know post-tribulation. This is what churches have divided. They've made denominations based on things that nobody really knows. Only calculations and divisions and and, uh, human deductions and conclusions. It's not only the churches of Christ. I'm talking about the whole Protestant world has divided. For me, it is as important, yeah, I know Jesus is coming, and I know He's coming soon. But whether He's going to come, uh, you know, pre-tribulation or post-tribulation, whether it's going to be a literal, it's as important if you put first the sugar and the milk in your cup and then the coffee, or first the coffee and then the sugar and the milk. That's about as important all these things are, because when He comes, we will, every eye will see, and every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess, and we read that in our own chapter. Yeah? We have got to learn to boil the gospel to its bare essentials. And I'll tell you the bare essentials for me. They're, they, they're not binding you. But I'll tell you what is bare essential for me. First of all, the oneness of God. If anybody compromises the oneness of God, for me, he's an idolater. I believe in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And I believe that the three are one. And I believe that every one of them is divine. Yeah? But however you divide it, and however you explain the relationship between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, at the end you've got to come up with one. Yeah? And in my opinion, that oneness is kept in the New Testament. It's not kept in the creeds that have developed in Western Christianity. That oneness is compromised at Nicaea, in my opinion. And then it shall see them. Yeah? And I could go into that on. That's why I like the restoration movement. And why I identify with it. It's because 
We are committed to the word of God in light of its historical and linguistic first century setting. And we are not bound by the creeds that have developed by the heretical branches of, the, of Rome and its daughters. Yeah? That's, that's my opinion. The oneness of God is essential. The second thing that is essential is the word of God. If we don't agree of what is the word of God, by what measuring stick we are going to measure truth from falsehood, we can't then agree on anything. If you don't accept the word of God from Genesis to Revelation as the inspired word of God, I'm sorry, I cannot deal with you. I don't have any tools to make an argument or to measure truth from falsehood. Yeah? I could try to prove to you that this book is the word of God and is divine and it is supernatural and it is inspired. But at the end result, with somebody who doesn't accept this book as the word of God, then I find a hard time to fellowship around God or Jesus Christ. The third thing that is absolutely essential for me is that there is no way for man to reconcile himself to God after he got thrown from the Garden of Eden except through Jesus Christ. That's essential. Jesus Christ as the Messiah and the Son of God, the only way of atonement and the only way to approach God on his throne is essential. And it's very clear in the scripture. The oneness of God is clear in the scripture. The inspiration of the scripture is clear in the scripture. The divinity and the messiahship and the atonement of Jesus Christ is clear in the scriptures. I will try to teach you. If you deny that Jesus is the messiah, I teach Jewish people and Muslims all the time, every day in Israel. I will try to prove to you that Jesus is the one of whom the prophets spoke. Yeah? But if you don't accept that, then I'll still be willing to teach you until either you or I will be blue in the face. Yeah? But I will not be able to have fellowship with you on the same around the throne of Jesus Christ. Okay? The, the fourth thing that is essential for me is that the world is going to be redeemed. No, excuse me. That the world is going to be have an end and that the Messiah will come. The coming of the Messiah for me is a very clear biblical teaching. Yeah? I taught on it in the luncheon on Friday night. You know that it is absolutely essential to believe that the world is not a permanent place. It's coming to an end. Our life here is temporary and we have a commitment to God. Yeah? To be prepared for His coming every day. That's essential. The purpose for all of creation yeah, is essential for me. That goes hand in hand with the coming of the Messiah and the end of the world. And the fifth thing that is essential for me is that morality and life supersedes doctrine and, re and religious practices. Yeah? You don't understand that, right? I'll explain it. It's not enough for a person to believe the right things and to go to church and to take the Lord's Supper and to sing without an instrument and to do all these wonderful things for God if he is basically immoral. 
Yeah? If a person is basically immoral, all the religion in the world is not going to help him. He's got to change his life. Yeah? He's got to change his behavior. Yeah? And I cannot allow anybody to force me to be immoral. Yeah? Morality has a primacy over religion. That doesn't mean that a moral person who is an unbeliever can be saved. That's not what I'm saying. But a believer who has given his life to Jesus Christ has got to know that he's got to keep his act clean. Yeah? That's essential. Uh, and, and of course that includes keeping the commandments of God and all these things. But, but as a point of what is essential. If a person comes to me, I believe all the right things. And I, I, I believe in Jesus Christ and in His divinity and in the inspiration of the scripture and in one God. And I've been baptized for the remission of my sins and everything. But I don't want to live a clean and moral and upright and honest life. Yeah? For me, He's... You know, that doesn't mean that he, I mean, everybody sins and everybody has the right to repent. But you cannot... Yeah? Think that going to church and be, being a religious, yeah, supersedes morality. Morality goes hand in hand with biblical Christian faith. Yeah? And there have been periods in history, and I've met people, yeah, who said, oh, I, I, morality and all this is, is immaterial because the grace of God is working on my life. I don't have to watch these things. I'm above them. And there are people who've had TV ministries in America who said that these laws don't apply to them. They apply to the people in the pews, but because they're God's anointed ones, they can go around and philander and, and, and do all kinds of things because they are now God's anointed ones, the leaders, and they have a special dispensation from God to be immoral. To me, that doesn't, that doesn't wash. Yeah? It's essential that we live upright, godly lives. As Christians. And that's, that's the five things that are essential. Yeah? The rest is negotiable. And I have a lot of strong opinions on it. But for me it's negotiable. I can discuss it, you know. And, and in, the, in the congregation in Jerusalem we have people who are quite argumentative. And have different opinions about the coming of Jesus Christ. But they are brothers in good standing in the congregation. And as long as they are not divisive, and as long as they are not destructive to the life of the congregation, they are absolutely loved and accepted as good brothers. Yeah? But even, we, we have all kinds of people, from all kinds of backgrounds that have come to Israel, immigrated to Israel. And they're all in one congregation, worshipping and praising God together, and doing the work of the Lord together. And we disagree about how Jesus is going to come. Is He going to come physically, and set up a kingdom in Mount Zion physically, in the Mount Zion the way we know it today? Yeah? Or is He going to come and set a spiritual kingdom, in a spiritual Mount Zion, in a new Jerusalem? We have arguments. And we disagree. But they are my brothers. Because I have a sister. 
that was born from the same womb as I did, from the same father and the same mother, you think we agree on everything with her? You know? You, you have a sister. You agree on everything with your sister. Anybody here of the, of the younger teenagers, you agree with everything with your brothers and sisters? Huh? I don't think so. I have two kids. They fight like mad. But the minute they separate from each other, they miss each other and love each other and write wonderful letters to each other and talk lovingly on the phone, it takes only about two hours of being, putting them together. Yeah? But they are still brothers and sisters. Yeah? And this is essential if we are going to have unity. Pay attention to the text and I am going to give you some time for questions. The text that of Romans 14 states that it doesn't make difference what you eat or what you drink or which day holiday or not holiday. Yeah? It, it states that you are, have no right to judge somebody else's servant. Yeah? It states that the only responsibility you have is to love your brother. Yeah? There is a heavenly father that he is the one holding the stick. Yeah? And he will correct his own children. And sometimes with a stick or with a, with a boot. Yeah? But we are responsible to accept those who are born again from the water and the blood. Those who have given their life to God and love Him. To accept them, to hug them, and for all of us to join together in study of the Word of God, looking for more knowledge and more revelation and a closer walk with, with God and with Jesus Christ from day to day. We all have room for growth. And we've got to see that as a commitment. The restoration movement started in the 19th century on these two premises. Unity and truth. And if we've lost the aspect of unity, we have also lost the aspect of truth. Because the truth that Jesus created, one body, yeah, is uncompromisable in the Word of God. And if we don't work on the unity, we will also lose the truth. And this is essential aspect of being like the New Testament church. We Jews were very nice to you Gentiles. We told you, listen boys, we put our knives back in place. All you have to do is keep these four things that are absolute minimums. Yeah? You don't have to become Jewish, you don't have to be circumcised, you don't have to keep kosher, you don't have to keep the Jewish holidays, you don't have to do any of these things. Just these four minimal things. Abstain from idolatry, abstain from immorality, abstain from eating meat strangled or blood, and abstain from bloodshed. That phrase blood is bloodshed. Check it in your concordance. Everywhere that the word blood appears by itself, in the context of the commandments, it's bloodshed. The eating meat strangled covers also eating blood. Yeah? The eating meat strangled covers also. That's the minimum. We said, this is the minimum you guys have to keep. As Jewish believers today, what we want from you is we, we want you to do the same thing for us. We say, all right, I'll, you keep your culture. 
but allow us to keep our Jewish culture. Yeah? Allow us to be who God made us to be. We don't have to eat pork in order to become holier. Yeah? I mean, if, if eating pork would make me holier, bring up, bring up the ham. You know? I want to be holier. I want to get closer to God. If it's going to make me holier, bring, bring up the ham. But if it's not going to make me holier, let me eat kosher. You know, I'm not going to bother you. Let me... You want to keep Halloween? Or what is this, you know, St. Valentine's Day? Yeah? You want to keep it? Who's telling you not to keep it? Even though the guy was a jerk. You know? It was an awful person. Open up encyclopedia, see St. Valentine. See who he was. I don't understand why they gave him a, a holiday of love. You know? But he wasn't a nice guy. If you want to keep it, keep it. Let me keep the, the, the exodus from Egypt. Let me keep the celebration of victory in the days of Queen Esther in Persia. Which comes now the 25th of February, next week. Yeah? Let me do the things which are a part of my culture and still consider you my brothers and sisters because we both have died and risen together with Jesus Christ into a new life under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. That's what makes us brothers. Not the color of our hair and not what we eat or what we drink or which days we keep or don't keep. Yeah? Christianity wasn't invented in the West, in America. And we've got to understand that the things that we are used to are not necessarily essentials for being pleasing to God. Nativia, www.netivyah.org